The first part of Philippians chapter 2, as a matter of fact, the first 11 verses, which we've already studied, we've already looked at kind of an in-depth format, but really, I mean, it is the first 11 verses are probably some of the most poetic, some of the most beautiful, some of the most theological verses in all of the Bible, yet alone just the New Testament or this particular letter. So we will be starting in verse 12, but I thought because we haven't been together in two weeks, that we would get a running head start by reading the first 11 verses of Philippians 2, and then we'll dive into our text. Verse 1, Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In our examination of this most glorious section of Scripture, two Sundays ago we noted how the key to rejecting a me-centeredness and the motivation for preferring others, which is essential to achieving unity, is to keep your eyes fixated where? Upon Jesus. Jesus and he alone. And this is why Paul, after discussing the importance of being unified, he intentionally presents Jesus as an example of true selflessness, true humility, directly following the individual challenge for these Philippians to let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. You see, the only way that we can ever see a Jesus culture yielded within a church, and what I mean by a Jesus culture, is a culture whereby the presence of Jesus is manifesting in and through the lives of the believers who make up that church, is for Jesus and his example to be our primary motivator for all behavior. So it's with these things in mind that Paul continues, verse 12, chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love the way Paul transitions this. There's a tenderness, isn't there? Therefore, my beloved. It's as though Paul is saying, in light of this glorious example established by Jesus Christ, the one who completely humbled himself to the will of his Father in order to prefer the likes of you and I, he then tenderly applies an exhortation. My beloved, or literally, the recipient's of my love, my agape. As you consider Jesus, as you consider these things, as you have always done, Paul affirms, as you've always obeyed, whether I was with you or whether I was absent, the exhortation was to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, right from the beginning, it should be mentioned, should be pointed out, that this statement, work out your own salvation, has been taken to mean many things that it does not. Tragically, this verse has been contorted and distorted to make the argument that your works somehow play a role 
and your salvation. I need to be clear right up front. Your works have played and never will play such an important role. First off, it's important in seeking to understand what Paul's getting at, what he's saying, what he has in mind, is to remember who he's writing to. Who is Paul writing to? Who is he making this exhortation towards? He's writing to believers. Believers who make up a church in Philippi, he is not writing to unbelievers. The intended audience, keep in mind, was Christians who had already experienced a saving faith based where? On Jesus' work alone. As a matter of fact, this working out, Paul even goes so far as to affirm it was already happening. It was an exhortation to continue to do something that was already occurring. <laughs> Paul, he's already said, right, in Philippians 1 verse 6, that he was confident of this very thing. What was he confident of? Writing to the Philippians that Jesus, he who had begun a good work in you, would do what? Would complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Right from the jump, please dispel the idea that eternal security is somehow in jeopardy by what Paul was articulating. He's writing to believers, not unbelievers. The second thing you need to keep in mind is that Paul is clear that they were to what? To work out, not work for their salvation. There's a distinction, and, and it's not semantics. The exhortation wasn't to do something to gain salvation. Salvation, by its very definition, must be given and received. It can never be earned or attained. It wasn't work for something. It was allow something to work out. It's a difference. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul was unequivocal to this point. He writes, For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. And then he even defines it further. It, speaking of salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, Paul is not contradicting himself here in Philippians. Instead, it appears that Paul is describing the result their salvation should have been manifesting in and through their lives. In the Greek, the word translated into English as work out is categorized. Gazomai. I worked on that. I worked real hard. I'm not Greek. Katergazomai. That word, and I'm not going to try to repeat it, work out. It means many things. It means a lot of different things. In the original language, this, this work out, one word, it can, it can mean to perform, to bring about, to fashion, to commit, to produce, to yield. It can mean to do that from which something results. If you study this word, if you do a word study, go to Blue Letter Bible, pull it up, look at all the different passages, all the different ways that it's translated, you'll find it's, it's all over the map. Let, let me give you just a few examples of how this word work out is translated in other places. In Romans chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts for one another, men with men committing, katergazomai, what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due, committing, work out. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. Paul writes, We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces, katergazomai, perseverance and perseverance, character, and character hope. James 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, katergazomai, produces patience. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us, katergazomai, a far more exceeding and external weight of glory. One more. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow produces katergazomai, repentance leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces, same word, death. 
it would appear that the fundamental idea behind this word katergazomai is that something already existed within a person that then naturally works its way from that person. Whether it be a homosexual lust manifesting in a shameful act, as Paul says, or a trial, tribulation, or light affliction producing perseverance, patience, or an eternal weight of glory, or for that matter, a sorrow yielding repentance or death, this working out is really nothing more than a natural manifestation of what's already within the individual in a more modern way. You would say that Paul is encouraging these Philippian believers to live out their own salvation. He's telling them to allow the work that God is doing within to work from their lives. This is the exhortation. You see, works are not the cause of salvation. They are the effects of one's salvation. Let me give you an example. Service. Your service, your Christian service, whether it be ushering on a Sunday, watching the babies, singing on the worship team, donating time at a food bank, coming to church to help with an ongoing building project, or for that matter, your generosity. None of these things should be seen, and the Bible is clear, none of them should be seen as a way to earn your salvation. You don't come to usher to get to heaven. That would be a a terrible prerequisite to get to heaven. Like for you to go to heaven every Sunday, you've got to watch the toddlers. I'm already in hell. What in the world's happening? See, the idea isn't that you do these things, do these services to earn some brownie points with the big man upstairs. Instead, these type of external works, where do they come from? They should be manifesting from all that God has done for you, God's work, the fact that Jesus saved you, works. None of these things are a bad thing. Works are not a bad thing, depending on their motivation. Friend, works can be a terrible thing. If they're being motivated from the wrong place, we get into religiosity, false gospel, even heresy. Things that I need to do to get to heaven is not a biblical idea. What Jesus has done so that I can go to heaven, that's the essence of the gospel. So understand, works, they're a means to an end, not the end of the means. Which makes sense, right? Because what does Paul immediately says after the exhortation? Right? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says what? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It was the perfect time to drop the beat, Michelle. You see, some have said that that kind of the framework is like on one end of the equation, Paul is presenting himself as an Arminianist. And then immediately he flips around to Calvinism. Hey, you work it out. Free will, responsibility, but, but it's God, right? Like this, this interesting waltz that Paul's engaged in. One of the problems when we talk about salvation as a work of God is that we don't fully understand what all is involved in the process of salvation. The truth is that the Bible presents salvation as being a threefold thing. Like there's three components to salvation. The Bible presents salvation as being a past tense event. We have been saved. But the Bible also presents salvation as a yet still future event. We will be saved. And then it presents it in a third manner as a continuing process that we are being saved. Let me give you three examples of these things. Past tense, a past work. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, Jesus saved us. Past tense. 
through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Savior, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is one of many examples of this past tense work of salvation. But there's also a future tense work of salvation. Here's an example. Romans 5, 8 through 10. Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, check it, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. A future event, past tense, future event. But let me give you an example of this continuing process. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 2, 14 and 15. Now thanks be to God who has always led us in triumph in Christ and through us diffused the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The reason that this biblical understanding of the threefold work of salvation, the reason this is important, this past, future, but present working, is that it clarifies what so many people confuse. First, if you've been saved, how can you not be saved? Unless, for some crazy reason, you decide to reject the original work of Jesus, which others would then argue is simply evidence you were never saved to begin with. By the way, that's as far into those weeds as I'm going to go this morning. Beyond this, and more specific to our study, is that if the work of salvation is a continuing process, then salvation becomes just as relevant to the present as it was in my past and will be in my future. And that is something you cannot you can't miss. See, what it means is that the, the same incredible work that Jesus did on the cross, the same amazing grace that redeemed you while you were lost, the same unconditional love that justified you and gave you a home in heaven for all of eternity, that same work, that same salvation that saved me from who I was and gives me a future hope is working today in and through my life. It's just as relevant, it's just important as today. One of the things that drives me nuts about the way that church presents salvation in an evangelical format is that it's like the golden ticket. Hey, there's this great Willy Wonka factory in heaven and you want the golden ticket so you can be like, oh, I got the golden ticket, I'm going to heaven. And that's great, we all want a golden ticket. Maybe not to Willy Walker's chocolate factory, but to heaven for sure. And yet, what that misses is the fact that salvation, what Jesus has done, is just as important to the life I have right now, today. It's not about where I'm going, it's about right now and the here and now. It's about who I am, salvation. And notice, according to Paul, what work is God presently doing? Like, what is God actively doing in the here and now? Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, don't miss the most obvious. This work is something that, that takes place where? Specifically where? In you. In you. It's an internal work. The continuing work of salvation, a work that transforms your life, it occurs in you, in the seat of your desire, your spirit. Upon regeneration, upon giving your life to Jesus, upon receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God immediately imparts in you a new nature, different from your old one. Specifically, he imparts the internal nature of Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 25, Paul, Paul writes, Now the works of your flesh, well, what are they? They're evident. 
He says there are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, or literally what the Spirit inside of you should be producing, yielding, manifesting, well, he writes, is love joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who are Christ's, Paul says, have crucified the flesh and its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, as you learn to cede more and more control, not to the flesh, but to the Spirit, God's Spirit inside of you, as you yield and cede more control to the Holy Spirit as opposed to your flesh. That's what Paul means when he, when he encourages us to walk in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, what results? You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul continues that whole thought. Understand, the results will be radical. If you're ceding control to His Spirit and you're rejecting your flesh, over time, God begins to transform. He begins to work something. He transforms, according to Paul, both your will and your actions, what you do. That's what he says. You see, as your desire changes, what naturally changes? What you do. Desires motivate behavior. If the desire changes, the behavior changes. I can't change desires by changing behaviors. That's law. But if I change the heart and I allow that to work out, that's what the gospel is all about, an internal transformation. See, in the end, what Paul is saying is that since God is working in you, working on your will, working on what you do, your job is to make a decision to let that work flow out. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who's working. So get out of the way, is what Paul's saying. This is why the very implications of this phrase, work out your own salvation, indicate the manifestation of God's work in you, well, it should be seen by those around you. The evidence of salvation should yield a progressing and constant change in how you live and what you do. And before we continue, don't, don't miss the very personal nature of this exhortation. Like Paul is clear that what should happen. He's saying you work out your own salvation. I don't think that's an accident. Like knowing the legalistic tendencies that arise amongst Christians, Paul is specific for a reason. Everyone has the responsibility to determine how God's work should manifest from their life. It's not your job to work out someone else's salvation. You work out your own. It's very personal. You and Jesus. It's not your job to dictate how that work should manifest from someone else. Now, <laughs> I, I say all that with maybe a, kind of an exception. Because Paul now continues in the next few verses by giving us an example of what working out your own salvation should actually look like before then closing out the chapter by presenting two practical examples we can exam examine. Verse 14, Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing. You know, there, there are things you like to underline in the Bible. That's one you kind of want to maybe mark out. <laughs> do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul gets very practical on how God's work in us should manifest from us. <laughs> He's, he says, do all things without complaining 
and disputing. Now, while on the surface, this challenge to resist complaining seems daunting. Can we agree on that? Do all things without, like, huh? Like, that seems daunting. That seems like a challenge. But keep in mind, the challenge, it's actually much deeper and greater than the translation even affords. Hate to pile on, but here goes. In the Greek, the word actually describes, quote, a secret displeasure not openly avowed. It's not a complaint you articulate. He's saying, don't even have the feelings of the complaint before they come out of your mouth. What? Like, that's tough, right? Not only should I not complain, I shouldn't feel a complaint. That's a difficult one. Not only should we as Christians do all things without disputing or arguing, the outer manifestation, and, and, and in the Greek, do all things literally means all things. Like there's no wiggle room there. Like there's not a caveat, there's not a limitation to what this scenario implies. Do all things can apply to church life, your Christian service. It can apply to taking out the garbage. It can apply to your job, the HOA. Like fill in the blank, like all things encompass all things. There's, there's not a restriction. But then Paul also says, don't just guard acting, disputing, arguing. But he says, guard your heart. Like Paul's challenge here, it focuses just as much on your attitude as it does your actions. And here's why this is so fascinating. Think about it. If you can resist such an attitude and behavior in all that you do, the reputation that will result from your life will effectively represent Jesus Christ in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And why? Because no one does that. Like seriously, the radical nature of a person who adopts such an approach to life, such a, a radical approach to life, that person ends up being so otherworldly that one has to conclude he or she is just not of this world. To do all things with the attitude and the act, like to not complain and not dispute and not argue, to not only just like, I'm not biting my tongue, I'm dying to the very desires within me. That is so otherworldly that people look at you and say, that person is weird. So weird, something is really either wrong or different with them. And that's the point. That's what Paul's getting at. Now, before, before you, you find that this is like an impossible mandate, there's no way I can do this. Don't forget that Paul says that you may what? Do? No. That you may become. That you may become. Not only does the ability to do all things without complaining and disputing only occur as a natural manifestation of God's work in your life, but this reference, once again, points back to the results as being in the natural manifestation of God's work in you and not yours. How do I deal with the attitude, Zach? How do I deal with the disputing and the complaining? Spend more time with Jesus. Let him rub off in a greater way. Let that work continue to change your will. Find one example of Jesus complaining in the New Testament. You can't find it. You know, I didn't, I didn't catch this until one of the final readings through my study. But, but this transition by Paul to this very thought, it's brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. Though in some regards, we do have the ability to curtail our actions, right? Like we do have a, a, a responsibility 
when it comes to our behaviors. Isn't it true that it's only a work of God that can yield an internal effect that transforms one's attitude? Like, like, if you're reading through this and you're kind of like, do all things without complaining and disputing, you're like, okay, I can, I can do that. I'll keep my mouth shut. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, I don't want you to just not do something. I want you to not feel a certain way. I can't change that. I can't affect that. How do I deal with that? And the answer is you don't. It's God working in you, both to change your will and what results from your will. It comes back to God. Follow Paul's logic. The natural results of the progressing work of salvation is to yield a person who now has a reputation of being what? Of being blameless. This is a person free from guilt. A person who's harmless. That doesn't mean you're weak. It means that you're unmixed or that you're pure and known to be a child of God without fault or one that is unblameable. And it's such a person who does all things without complaining and disputing, who has this reputation of being blameless, harmless, and a child of God without fault, will then naturally what? Shine as a light in the world. Or literally be seen as an illuminator, a person who holds fast the word of life. That's what Paul's saying. God's work in me manifests in a witness through me. We talk about witnessing. And first thing in our minds, we think of Jehovah Witnesses. You know, those people that walk our neighborhoods and knock on the door and we have to have those awkward moments where we pull the blinds shut and hide. We think of witnessing in a radical sense of someone in their lunchroom that stands up on the table and says, thus saith the Lord. Like witnessing, we think of witnessing as an action, as something we do when the scripture says that it's the natural byproduct of who we are. That we're a witness of What? of the resurrected, living Jesus Christ. I'm telling you about Jesus. I'm telling you he's alive. I'm telling you he can change your life. Why? Because he's done it in me. And where should that conversation come from when that person's like, you're weird. You're not natural. And you can be like, yeah, I know. I used to be natural, and my life was a mess. And then I, was, I had a supernatural encounter with Jesus. And he changed me forever. A light doesn't have to work to be a light. To be an illuminator. I just shine. One of the other things that amazes me about this approach, about Paul's approach in this passage, is that while he does affirm that they were living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, did you notice Paul's focus isn't to rail against or even to highlight the various crookedness and perversions within that world? He says, yeah, we're in a crooked and perverse generation. But his focus is to exhort believers to be examples of Jesus in that world. Examples of a better way. We'll get to that at the end of the study. But one of the other things that just blows my mind is how so sincere and personal that Paul wanted these things, this godly reputation to be found in these Philippians. Like Paul is not, he's not issuing a suggestion. And this, it's not like it's, it's presented as a flippant desire. The truth is that Paul in our passage is willing to place the success and effectiveness of his entire ministry on God's work manifesting in these Philippians in such a way. He writes, may I rejoice in the day of Christ through your reputation, so that I know I have not run or labored in vain. And then he continues, verse 17, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. This phrase, it's very priestly. If I am being poured out as a drink offering, on the sacrifice, the service of your faith, I am glad. Like what Paul is getting at, what he's saying, is that if his death ends up being necessary for such a work of God to be accomplished 
in and through these Philippians, Paul's like, I will be glad. I will rejoice. I will not only be willing to die, but I will be happy if through my death, this is what's accomplished. A point he then adds, the Philippians should also rejoice in as well. But I trust, verse 19, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send Timothy at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. Paul's in Rome. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Though Paul has been honest about his present circumstance, his death was something that he had come to peace with, and the knowledge that God could use his death to further the gospel yielded incredible joy for him. But on two occasions in this passage, Paul says what? He says, but, yeah, I might die, and I've got peace with that and joy if God uses it, but I trust in the Lord. Twice in this passage, he just reaffirms, I trust in the Lord. Paul knew that it was likely, even expected to some degree, that his life would end in Rome. But that being said, Paul was still making arrangements as if the Lord would bring about an unlikely release. He's like, I think I'm going to die, but just in case, I trust the Lord, so I'm also making some plans. Not only does he say here that he intended to, to send once he found out what happened, Timothy to Philippi, But he also says that he was planning to come there himself, writing that I myself may also come shortly. It's not an accident that the letter shifts from describing the reputation Paul desired to manifest through God's work in these these Philippians to now this man Timothy and later Epaphroditus. Sure, from a practical sense, Paul intended to send Timothy to Philippi because he wants to retrieve word, how they were doing, what their state was. And he had already sent Epaphroditus bringing this very letter. We set that up in our intro study. But in mentioning them both in context to the flow of the letter, Paul is presenting each man as an example of such a reputation he wants to be found in them through the work of God. Paul begins by describing Timothy as being like-minded or literally, equal in soul. The first mention we have of Timothy in Scripture is in Acts chapter 16, when we're told that during Paul's second missionary journey through the region of Galatia, we read that he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek, meaning he probably didn't. We don't know much about Timothy in regards to his conversion, but since he was well spoken of by the brother, Timothy joins Paul in his missionary endeavors. He joins the team. And if you study Timothy's life, which we don't have time for this morning, not only will you find that this man becomes one of Paul's most trusted friends, but Timothy ends up being seen by the apostle as a beloved son. He writes that in one of his letters. There is no question that Paul had a deep love, an admiration, a respect for Timothy. And notice the incredible compliments that he pays him. First, while Paul was deeply suspect of who he'd send to Philippi, stating that most people seek their own, not the things which are of Christ, not so with Timothy. The point is that Timothy was other-centeredness. He had an other's mentality. He was Christ-focused. So much so that Paul was confident that Timothy... He would sincerely care for the state of the Philippians, that he would serve the church, not his own interests. If I can sum up Timothy, let me sum it up this way. Timothy, as you and I, was a man who loved Jesus and loved those that Jesus loved. I think that's a pretty good way to sum up us. Do you love Jesus and do you love the people Jesus loves? Pretty radical mandate. Additionally, Paul says, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Because Timothy had been with Paul during both of his stops in Philippi, Paul was now able to point to his proven character and faithful service. The Philippian church knew 
of Timothy's internal character, how? Because outwardly, it had manifested. And it was that outward manifestation that proved or validated it. A great example of someone who God was working in, both to will and to do, who was also then working out their own salvation. It was something you could see. It was manifesting from him. Verse 25, Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, who is there as they're reading the letter, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, referring to if he had died. Therefore, I sent Epaphroditus the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you would rejoice, and I be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. In addition to Timothy, who Paul planned to send to Philippi, the apostle, he closes the chapter presenting another example of a man who emulated the very things he's been discussing earlier in the chapter. In our intro, once again, Epaphroditus had been sent to Rome from Philippi with the financial support that the Philippian church had, had gathered for Paul. In actuality, this very letter was entrusted to Epaphroditus, which is why Paul says in this passage, Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. Now, what's worthy of note, and what's important for our purposes, is that Paul gives us a little background context, a little detail, that while in Rome, Epaphroditus had become so ill Paul says he was sick almost unto death. Not only was Paul personally worried that his brother would die, but word of his condition had also reached back to the believers in Philippi. Paul writes here that Epaphroditus longed for them. Why? He was distressed that they knew he had been sick. It's a thousand miles with no Facebook. It's hard for word to travel for word to spread. Epaphroditus has been sick, but now he's heard that the Philippians know he was sick, almost to the point of death, and he's worried that they might be thinking he's died. He's got family. We don't know all the details. Paul, it would appear from the text, would have preferred if Epaphroditus had stayed with him, and yet it had been more important to send him home to alleviate any worries that they might have had as to his condition. And so Paul writes this letter, sends it with him. Epaphroditus travels a thousand miles back to Philippi. Now, aside from the interesting backstory, notice the glowing and ringing endorsement that Paul gives Epaphroditus. He begins by calling him a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. There's an equality that Paul sees with Epaph Epaphroditus between himself and Epaphroditus. And then Paul affirms that he not only fulfilled his mission by being the Philippian messenger, but had practically ministered to Paul's needs while in Rome. This man was other-centered. He was taking care of Paul. This word ministered actually also does imply kind of a priestly role, taking care of the practical needs that Paul had. It's what Paul then means when he, when he says that Epaphroditus supplied what was lacking in the Philippian service towards him. As a matter of fact, Paul even tells them to esteem, to hold such a man in esteem, going so far as to say that in his service for the work of Christ, Epaphroditus had come close to death, not regarding his own life. Another detail that's important, apparently he had gotten sick because of his service. Now, whether that had just been the journey itself or the fact that he was just working himself ragged and hadn't taken care of himself while he had been there, either way, Paul had a high regard for this man. One scholar, one of the guys that I read, he makes this observation about this statement that Epaphroditus did not regard, not regarding his life, that, it's a, that it was actually a common phrase in Greek language, especially in literature that it was a phrase most commonly attributed or associated with gamblers. Like what Paul is saying 
is that for the sake of Christ, this man, Epaphroditus, he had been willing to risk it all. That this man had bet the house, willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ Jesus. Are you willing to bet it all? If Christ calls you, are you willing to put it all out? To say it's in your hands? I don't know what may come. I don't know what would fall. I don't know if I'm going to get sixes. But I'm going to trust you. Epaphroditus. Now, before we wrap things up, don't, don't overlook another subtle but inescapable detail. Epaphroditus is presented to us, right, as a godly man, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, man faithfully serving Jesus, right? Not a single bad thing is said of Epaphroditus. This man loved Jesus and loved Paul and loved others and loved this church in Philippi so much, he worked himself to the point that he almost died, became so sick. And yet, we have this statement, right? That God had mercy on him, which indicates that Epaphroditus' healing was not of the miraculous variety. Now, the reason that I bring this up is to dispel a common heresy that sickness exists because of lack of one's faith. You can't say that of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was healed how? Now, on a side note, all healing is a miracle. Like sin is trying to destroy us and kill us, Death, it's, it's on the doorstep. At any point, the fact that we can be healed, is just, it's a kind of an unbelievable concept. We do have a great physician. But the, the, the language is not that this was a, a work of healing, that Paul had prayed and that there was healing. Paul had an ailment himself. He prayed three times for, and he lived with forever. It wasn't a lack of faith. You see, Epaphroditus survived how? Paul says, because of God's mercy. His mercy. It wasn't his faith or his deservingness. It was God's mercy. Now, in closing, there is no doubt that like these Philippians, you and I, hate to break it to you, but we also live in what could be described as a crooked and perverse generation. Sadly, our cultural norms have redefined what is false into truth. Our world has taken the lie and made it into a new gospel. Aside from rejecting what is godly, we live in a world challenging what is even simply natural. What has always been seen as perverted has been normalized by the majority. What has always been fringe has become today mainstream. Today, and I speak more specifically of America, the fear of society is not the creeping influences of an amoral secularism, but instead, the great fear of our society is the traditional influences of a Christian ethic. The truth is that the most dangerous beliefs in our world today, the most dangerous beliefs that you can have in our society is a biblical understanding of marriage as well as the simple belief that biology is the chief determining factor of one's gender identity. Those are the two most dangerous beliefs you can have in American society today. The truth, we have gone from one nation under God to one nation offended by God. And it's in facing such a generation that what our crooked world needs most is a unified church that possesses the type of godly reputation Paul describes here. You know, our focus should not be on condemning the world or calling out its perversions. Picketing clinics, holding up signs about marriage, this, that, and the other. 
It shouldn't be on calling out the perverse. We can say it's crooked and perverse. But instead, you know what our focus should be if we want to be effective? If we want to change the world? Our focus should be on allowing God to work out our salvation so that we can better emulate Jesus. Your world, and work it from a very small angle up. Your world, let's say your marriage. You know what your marriage needs most? A lot more of Jesus and less of you. Amen? It, it, it's, it's the truth. And what does your family need from you? Work out your own salvation. Personal. What does your, your family need a lot more of from you? You or Jesus? It really needs more Jesus. Your kids need more of Jesus coming through you. And if you, if you go out another step, what, is your, what do your neighborhood need more than anything? Your neighbors. What do your neighbors need? More of you or more of Jesus? They, your neighborhood needs more of Jesus. And what about your school or your job? What does your job need? More of you or more of Jesus? See, the world needs more of Jesus working in us and working through us. We need to shine his lights, not condemning the world of its darkness, but showing that there's a, a different way, a better way, a more godly way. Honestly, I have found that most understand that this world is broken. I think most people understand it on a, just a personal level. They might be the hardest amoral atheist on the block, but deep down they know that this world is broken. That people experience the emptiness because that's all the world can can offer. I think everyone realizes our world is, is broken and empty. They might debate crooked and perverse, but broken and empty, we can agree. And it's with that in mind that what people need more than anything isn't Christians telling them what they already know, but to see in us a life that dramatically contrasts it. That you and I are known as people that I can't explain it all, but that person holds fast the word of life. May you and I, may we, hear the exhortation of Paul. The same one he, he gave 2,000 years ago to these Philippians is just as relevant to us today to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing this incredible promise, right? Knowing this, that in the end, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So Father, Lord, that's what we ask this morning.